for your word and as we look at it now help us to understand it to believe it to apply and obey it for jesus sake amen please be seated You may know that some of these weeks leading up to Christmas, we're looking at one or two of the Psalms. We come this morning to Psalm 96 that Gretel read for us earlier. Uh, you shouldn't need to be told where it is, but just in case, it is on page 602. Page 602, Psalm 96. I want to read the first verse. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. I don't know if you know the story of a couple of Christian missionaries who were in Tibet in the early part of the last century. They were traveling from village to village preaching the gospel. And one afternoon, as they're on their travels, they stopped on a hillside to take a breather, have a little bit of lunch. When they finished lunch, they began to sing one or two hymns. At the time, some Buddhist monks were passing by. They heard them singing, and they invited them to come back to their monastery, their lamasery, for the evening. The monks took them back, they gave them dinner. And then they plied them with all sorts of questions about their faith and about their God. In the end, they set up all night answering the questions. In the morning, they had to go. They had to get on to the next village. But they asked the monks why they'd been so interested. What was it that had grabbed their attention? And the monks said, it was your singing. Only the people who know their God will sing. Maybe that's why the Bible is so full of song. Because here in the scriptures, we get to know God. We'd never get to know him without the scriptures. Here is indeed the revelation of God. And when we do get to know him, when we begin to get a glimpse of God as he really is, rather than we imagine him, when we see how wonderful he is, then we will sing. And the Psalms are the Bible's book of songs. That's why we're looking at them. Now, when I laid out this series some uh, months ago, I have to say it's a complete matter of chance that we chose this psalm for Advent Sunday. Yet actually, it couldn't be more appropriate, because this is the psalm that is taken almost word for word from a song written in 1 Chronicles, chapter 16, for the people as they marched into Jerusalem with the ark. The symbolism of that march was that they were crowning God's victory over his enemies by planting his throne in the enemy's citadel. It was all about the king coming to claim his own. From now on, Jerusalem will be God's city. There's a tremendous sense of excitement, of anticipation, as they wait for the arrival of the king. Now today, of course, is Advent Sunday. It's a day when we look forward again to Christ's coming. His first coming on Christmas, and even more to his return. That great day when Christ shall bring the world to an end and usher in his reign of perfect righteousness. When, as in the psalm, the throne of the king will be established forever. But there's another side to it as well. It's very interesting. The gospel reading, the prayer book appoints for today, is the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday. I think strange. Here we are, Advent Sunday. Why the story of Palm Sunday? But what was Palm Sunday about? It was again about the king coming into the city to claim his own. Do you see the symmetry of it all? Here is a song that the people were to sing as King David entered into Jerusalem to establish God's throne and a secure, safe place for God's people. It's a song that's echoed as King Jesus marches into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, before the events of that first Easter, again planned and designed to secure safety for God's people. 
But it's also a song that looks forward wonderfully to that great day when the great king shall come again to establish God's throne and bring salvation for God's people. Isn't it wonderful how the Bible just ties together in that way? There is this symmetry, this coherence, this connectedness that no human being could ever engineer. Well, anyway, let's look at this psalm more closely because it has a great resonance for us today on Advent Sunday. What does it speak of? Well, first of all, verses 1 to 3, it speaks of a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Now, when the Bible talks of a new song, it's not just saying that uh, new music will be composed for the king's entry or that new hymns will be written. That is often the case. It's true today, isn't it? Whenever there's a coronation or a great royal event or a wedding or a jubilee, new poems are written by the poet laureate, new songs are composed. But this is much more than that. See, it's not just simply the music or the song that's new. It is what the people will sing about that is new. It's a new work of God. And this theme of newness is a very big part of the Bible's teaching. We're often told that God is doing a new thing. There's the new Jerusalem. There's the new creation. There's the new wine of the kingdom. Do you know that phrase, new wine, occurs 42 times? There's the new birth, the new mercies, the new covenant. We will be given a new heart, a new spirit, a new name, a new teaching. We'll wear new clothes. We'll be, we're given a new command. We will receive new life. We'll have a new self. Amongst the last things Jesus says to us in Revelation is, Behold, I am making everything new. And of course, we know that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. No wonder we're told to sing a new song. No old song could ever hope to capture the wonder of the new things that God is doing and will do. We need a new song. So he says, sing a new song to the Lord. But then in verse 2, the flow, as it were, changes. Before, the psalmist had been asking people to speak to God. Now he urges them to share the wonder of what God has done with the world around. This is a song that we should want to sing to the world. Tell among the nations his glory, his marvellous deeds among all people. It's very interesting, actually. The world thinks it knows what the Christian faith is about. The world thinks it understands the faith and has rejected it. In fact, it has very little idea of what it is. The half has not been told it. This is a message for all the world, for all people. There's a very important lesson here, you see. True worship will always result in our wanting to share our faith with others. You cannot worship God without wanting others also to share in that worship. We touched on that a little bit last week. See, there's no sense in coming to church on a Sunday to sing God's praises if we don't want in some way to ask others to come and join us. See, if that happens, it means we haven't fully understood what God has done. When we understand what he's done, not only do we want to sing a new song, we want to ask everybody else to join in with it. Now, over the next few weeks, we have a wonderful opportunity to share God's love and God's message with the world around us. We've got all manner of carol services and crib services and Christmas services. It's a time of the year when people actually love to come to church. Well, let's invite them. Let's pray for them. Let's pray that they would want to sing that new song themselves. Why should we want them to come? Why is it so important? Well, verses 4 to 6 tells us, For the Lord is a great God. He is to be feared above all gods. All the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. 
Why do we share this new song with others? Because God is a great God. He's the true God. He is the only God. All the other gods you see are idols. They're shams. They're, they're blasphemous imitations of the real thing. See, the word here for idols sometimes is used to speak of angels or kind of uh, spiritual potentates. But here the psalmist is using the word the way it's most often used, quite clearly to refer to the false gods of the heathen. The word is used elsewhere and translated as worthless. These false gods are worthless. What he's saying is that the gods the world worships, whether they're mental or metal, they are worthless. They're imposters. They are not the real thing. And just in case we don't get this, the psalmist points to the attributes of our great God. He points to the splendor of the creation. He points to his majesty, his strength, his glory. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Now, is this an earthly sanctuary or is he referring to heaven? Well, perhaps he's referring to both. Because God is here when we meet together. But that is just a pale imitation, a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary when one day we'll be actually physically in the presence of of the Lord himself because where God is there is glory what do we mean by glory It's used a number of times here in this passage it's usually used to mean weight or heaviness or that's the most uh, common understanding of the word the original word but it comes therefore to mean importance and honor and majesty by the time the, the New Testament takes it over it becomes judgment or opinion and by extension good reputation and honor but it's all those things and many, many more because no word in English can really fully summarize the meaning of this word glory. It means God's greatness. It means his majesty. It means his splendor, his beauty and his honor. How he is unimaginably greater and more wonderful than anything we've ever seen before. God's glory is often illustrated, isn't it, by visible displays of light or dazzling brightness. But are far too bright or far too glorious for us to see. And God is so dazzling, so resplendent, so glorious that we can barely look upon him. Now this is the God of whom the psalmist sings. This is the God that we are called to sing a new song to. This is a God that we call the nations to respond to as well. To give him the praise, the glory, the honor of which he is truly worthy. See, I wonder if our God is somehow so small that we've lost the concept and the sense of just how great and wonderful he really is so what have we had we had a new song we had a great god third we get a right fear verses seven to nine as he speaks to nations he tells the nations ascribe to the lord families of the nations glory and strength ascribe to the lord the glory due to his name don't worship these imposters turn away from that it's, it's, it's vain it's useless Worship the true God, he says. And then he adds in verse 9, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Give God the honor he deserves. But if you do that, then you will tremble before him. The word tremble is translated elsewhere as writhe or be in anguish. And it's making the point is that when we see God in his glory, when we get a glimpse of God as he really is, then the most natural instinct we will have is to tremble and to cower before him. See, people talk sometimes as though meeting God is going to be just like a walk in the park, be rather fun. We talk about all the questions we're going to ask God when we meet him. It won't be like that at all. It never is in the Bible. When people meet with God, they tremble before him. They fall on their knees before him. And that is one of the things that the world has lost. Any concept of the glory, the righteousness, the holiness, 
the magnificence of God. Any sense that he is a God to be feared. As the psalmist says, Paul quoted in Romans 3, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The world no longer fears God because the world has no conception of his glory or his holiness. People in Morton no longer fear God. They would have done 100 years ago, maybe 200 years ago. They don't today. If they think of God at all, it's like a chum, as a pal. And we need to recapture this sense of the awesomeness of God and trembling before him. But it isn't just the world, is it? It's the church as well. We too often have also lost a sense of that glory and that holiness. We've heard the words too often. We've become over-familiar maybe with the sacred texts. As Ryle, J.C. Ryle once put it, how often those who live nearest to the means of grace are those who neglect them the most. There is only too much truth in the old proverb, the nearer the church, the further from God. Familiarity with sacred things has an awful tendency to make men despise them. Isn't there just a ring of truth in that? You become over-familiar. Well, you need to revisit these words. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Now, of course, he's a loving father. Of course, he accepts us the moment we turn to him. But there must be that sense of fear as well. A right fear. And then finally, a true judge. Verses 10 to 13. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And then the psalmist encourages all the, the heavens and the earth and the sea and the fields to the trees of the forest to sing for joy because of the greatness of God. But what is it they're going to praise God for? His judgment. They will sing before the Lord for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. Isn't that interesting? What is it there to praise God for? It's his judgment and his justice. See, when the king comes, he will come as judge. We know that when Christ came into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, his first act was one of judgment. He goes into the temple. He overturns the tables of the moneylenders. We know that when the king comes back, he will act in judgment. See, this picture of the heavens, the earth, the sea, the fields, the trees... It's a reminder, isn't it, of that Palm Sunday when Jesus said, even if the crowds were quiet, the stones would cry out. You see, all creation is going to be caught up in the restoration. See, it wasn't just human beings who were affected by the fall. The world was, the earth was. And so when the king comes back, it's not just humanity that will be restored, it'll be the created order. See, that's what they're rejoicing at, that when the king comes, he will rule justly. He will bring justice and righteousness to the world. He will put everything right for them as for us. Now, when we're told the king comes as judge, it's partly the sense it means he, just, he will come as a ruler, in the sense that Jephthah and Gideon and Samuel, in the Old Testament, the judges, were rulers. They brought order. And our king will bring perfect order. See, we know only too well, don't we, that our human leaders are only too fallible. They get things wrong. But this king, the true judge, will be perfect in his judgments. He will rule with perfect justice. But at the same time, in bringing order, this judge will punish the ungodly. He will judge the world in righteousness and truth. And it'll be a wonderful thing. See, we often speak as though judgment is something we're slightly embarrassed about. We'd much prefer it wasn't the case. We would like to keep a bit quiet about it. We'll tell everyone about the love of God, but we won't talk about his judgment and his justice. Maybe previous generations talked too much about it, seemed to delight in it. 
we're pretty squeamish by comparison. But we need to realize that God's judgment is a wonderful thing. God's justice is a glorious thing. If you read through the Psalms, it's amazing how many of the Psalms keep coming back to God's judgment and his justice. Because at the end, you see, every wrong will be righted, every debt repaid, every injustice sorted. Yes, it may be terrifying, but it will be wonderful because God's justice is wonderful. So I've been thinking about judgment this last week and I was struck by this thought. See, the world hates the idea of God as a judge. How dare he judge? Now, surely God is a God of love who will accept everybody. How can he judge us? I haven't done anything terribly wrong, they will often say. But the strange thing is that same world sits in constant judgment upon everything and everybody else. Have you ever noticed that? You, if you turn on the radio or turn on the television or you pick up a newspaper, you read the blogs, what are they full of? Judgment. Often vicious, mean and unfair judgment. This week we've read about the Leveson Report uh, seeking to judge the modern press. And for a moment the tables were turned. The press itself was being judged. About time too, most people would think because the press itself spends most of its time judging others. I haven't seen the papers today, but I no doubt the front pages of the Sunday press are full of anger against something or someone, full of judgment. The world is incredibly quick to judge. But human judgment is often wrong. It's frequently one-sided. It's almost unvariably unforgiving. Now, if we're so quick to judge, why do we begrudge God's judgment? Because, of course, where human judgment is flawed, God's judgment will be absolutely perfect. That's why it's something to be celebrated. Celebrated, but also feared. As God, he is to be feared. And if there's one thing I'd like to leave us this morning with, it is this. That we don't trifle with God. He alone is God. He is the great God. He is unimaginable in his glory and his majesty. He is perfect in his judgments. He rules over all the world and one day all the world will acknowledge him and he will rule in righteousness, in truth. It's a wonderful prospect. But because that is true, the world needs to hear about him. And we have a great chance over the next few weeks. You see, if these things are true for everyone, then everybody needs to hear it. I guess there are people around us, people we live next door to, people in our families, people we work with, people we're friends with. Maybe they've never heard them. Well, they need to, don't they? And this next few weeks gives us a great chance to enable them to hear them. So will we invite them to hear about this God who is unimaginably great and perfectly just? There's a great invitation come to Christ to know his forgiveness and to know his comfort and security but there's also the other side that if we reject him one day we'll receive his justice it's two sides C.S. Lewis put it like this God is the only comfort but he is also the supreme terror he is the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from he is our only possible ally and yet we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. Well, let's give people the chance to think again this Christmas. Shall I pray for us? Then we'll sing our final hymn together. Let's pray. Sing to the Lord a new song.
Sing to the Lord all the earth. For he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. Help us to take these extraordinary truths seriously, we pray. Lift our hearts in worship and adoration of you at the wonder of what you've done and who you are. Your glory, your majesty. But also I pray that we will be very conscious that one day every knee will bow before you. And for some it will be too late. Help us to encourage that world to hear the message. May we pass on that wonderful new song to our friends, our family, our neighbours. That they might sing with us, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen.